Um, All right, if you have a Bible, take your Bible out um, or open up Google and type in. uh, Look at Matthew 7, 15 through 23. Matthew 7, 15 through 23. We are continuing on in our sermon series in Jesus' justly famous sermon on the Mount. And uh, we are in the second to last week of a uh, lengthy sermon series in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, uh, and next Sunday will be our last, and then we'll, we, we will be spending uh, Advent, uh, four Sundays in the book of Ruth uh, in the Old Testament. Uh, but for now, we are continuing on looking at the words of Jesus in Matthew seven, fifteen through 23, and when you arrive there, if you want to stand with me out of respect and honor for the reading of the words of Jesus here. Let's listen with reverence and with joy, for this is the word of our God. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits." Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, would you prepare our hearts now? Would you open our ears now? Would you open our eyes now to receive, to hear, to see Christ? Lord, would you help us to submit to his words this morning, some of which are hard words for us. And would you convict us where we need to be convicted? And would you comfort all of us with the truth of the gospel in Christ Jesus? It's in his name that we pray. Amen. You can have a seat. Well, Last week, we heard Jesus' words calling us to walk on the narrow way, to travel the narrow road, to follow the narrow path, which is the call to indeed follow Jesus. And uh, as we continue making our way through the Sermon on the Mount, we see Jesus giving us some some warning signs while some warning signs while we're on our way some warnings for those of us who are on the path you know if you go hiking in the land of dollywood the great 
Smoky Mountains. As you are about to enter onto the path, and as you're walking on the path, you're likely to see some warning signs warning you about the potential presence of black bears. You need to be careful because you might see, you might come in contact with a black bear. You might need to be aware of certain parts of the path in the winter months that might be slippery, maybe icy, bridges that could be icy. Or while you're driving through the city here, which more of us are probably familiar with, you're going to see many, many signs on the side of the road. You have speed limit signs cautioning you, warning you not to go too fast. You have signs warning you when you're approaching a bridge, letting you know that when it gets cold, bridges are the first part of the road to freeze. You have uh, warning signs that, that tell you about um, traffic light cameras coming up ahead. So slow down as you're going through that intersection so you don't get clocked for, for speeding. Um, don't run the red light. You are going to get a ticket in the mail. If you do, you have these signs that warn you about all sorts of things that you need to be aware of, all sorts of dangers that you, are, that you might face while you're on the road. Well, similarly, Jesus is giving us warning signs as we enter and walk the narrow way. If you're going to follow Jesus, if you're following Jesus, if you're going to travel this road, you need to know this is a road teeming with dangers and obstructions and temptations and all sorts of things that you need to be aware of. And so Jesus gives us three three warnings about things we need to be aware of. Wolves, words, and works. Wolves, words, and works. Let's dig in. First, he warns us about the wolves. He says, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Now, remember going all the way back to when Pastor John Pope visited us and preached on Matthew 6, 19 through 24, and when Pastor Dan preached recently on Matthew 7, 1 through 6, there was a great deal of emphasis placed on your eye. The, the eye, you, 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 when it comes to life in the kingdom of God, being able to see clearly is of great importance. You need to be able to see clearly so that you're not distracted and intoxicated by a life of accumulating possessions and wealth. You need to be able to see clearly so that you don't give holy things to dogs or pearls to pigs. But here Jesus is calling us to see clearly, not just so that we see dogs, pigs, and possessions for what they are, but so that we see wolves for what they are. Now, who's Jesus calling wolves here? He's calling false prophets wolves, false prophets, people who claim to speak for God. Pastors claiming to be ministers of God's word. Theologians and teachers claiming to teach the truth of Jesus Christ. Leaders and podcast hosts and and famous speakers claiming to lead people to Jesus. Yet, Jesus says they are liars. The word translated as False prophets here is the word pseudo-prophets. Pseudo meaning lying. These are lying prophets. They're lying teachers, lying theologians, lying leaders, lying pastors. And they come, Jesus says, in sheep's clothing, meaning they look good in some respect. 
in some way, shape, or form, they look like Christians. They claim to be Christians. Like, notice here, he's not warning us against Richard Dawkins. Richard Dawkins teaches false ideas, but Richard Dawkins is also not teaching false ideas, all while claiming to be a follower of Jesus. He's not claiming to speak on behalf of Jesus. The kind of false teacher, the kind of false prophet that Jesus is warning about here comes in sheep's clothing. They come under the guise of being a little lamb of Jesus, living and teaching under the guise of true Christianity. Jesus says, watch out, beware, as you walk the narrow way. There will be some that you meet on the path that claim to follow me, but are actually seeking to draw you away. And they're not just draw you away. What do do wolves do? Think about the motivations of wolves. They want to devour and destroy. They want to eat you alive. They want to kill and consume. They are ravenous wolves, Jesus says. Now, of course, you run into a problem. If they profess to be a follower of Jesus, how do you recognize them? If they they profess to be sheep, how do you recognize them? Well, Jesus says, you will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? No. So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear good fruit, Nor can a diseased tree, or a healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, rather. Nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. In other words, Jesus is saying, look at their life. Look at their life. Look at their teaching, yes. But not only their teaching, look at their character, their attitude, their disposition. Do they bear the fruit of a transformed heart or not? And he uses the analogy of a tree and its fruit to show you this. You know, a healthy tree, what does it produce? It produces good fruit. And a a diseased tree, what does it produce? Bad fruit. Well, in the same way, someone who is not a sheep, not just a sheep outwardly, but also one inwardly, someone who is transformed by the truth and grace of the gospel, someone who has experienced the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit that we've been seeing described in the Sermon on the Mount, the the, the miracle, the transformed heart, well, they will bear good fruit. Of course, he's not saying they'll be flawless. He's not saying they'll be sinless, and thank God for that. Or else no one would be permitted into pastoral ministry. But nonetheless, a Christian leader's life and character ought to be characteristically good. There ought to be good fruit there. And of course, you you might well recognize that language, the language of fruit. We see the language of fruitfulness regarding one's character used all over the Bible. But particularly well-known might be the, the famous fruit of the Spirit passage in Galatians 5, 16 through 26. We spent a few weeks in this text just a, a couple of years ago where Paul gives a list of of attitudes, behaviors, and dispositions that that could be designated as bad fruit. He calls them works of the flesh. And then a list of attitudes and dispositions that could be described as as good fruit. It's a very helpful list as we look at Matthew 7 here because these are the kinds of things 
that we ought to be on the lookout for. The bad fruit, Paul says, is easily identified. He says the works of the flesh, that's the bad fruit, they're evident. There's sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. On the other hand, though, Paul says that the fruit of the Spirit, the the good fruit, is also easily identifiable. Now, someone who is indwelled and transformed by the presence of the Holy Spirit within will demonstrate another kind of character. Paul says that the fruit of the Spirit, this is the good fruit, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So here's a, a very vital and important piece of application for us as a church. You know, when we place people in leadership positions here, especially positions that are connected with teaching and preaching and kind of theological, biblical authority, that of an elder, that of a pastor, we use those terms synonymously, look at their life and character. Or if at some point in time you move on from our church, which will likely happen for many of you, and you're looking for a church or pastors to submit to. Or if in, in, in the near future, for us as a church, if we're looking to select and, and send missionaries or church planters to plant a church, don't just look at what they say about themselves. They, ve- they very well may claim to be sheep, but, but what does the fruit of their life and character say? or even for myself and and the the other current elders. And I beg you, don't be cynical or overly judgmental and don't expect sinlessness, but be discerning. Do you see this fruit in our lives? Anytime you're considering pastors to follow, submit to, or send, is there sexual immorality or impurity or sensuality present in their lives? How about enmity or strife or jealousy? Do they throw temper tantrums when they don't get their way? Are they divisive? Do they participate in debaucherous behavior? Or are they peaceable? Are they patient and kind? Are they gentle? Do they exercise a a measure of self-control and temperance? Look at the fruit. And that's not the only text to look at. And judging the life of a pastor or teacher or missionary or leader, particularly for the office of pastor, Paul gives a very clear set of, of qualifications for someone to hold the office of pastor, or elder, or overseer in 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7. And most of them are qualifications of character, although one is a qualification of competency and gifting. Paul gives this list. He says that if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, that means he must be a a one-woman man faithful to his bride, must be sober-minded, self-controlled, respect. Is this the kind of man you can respect? Hospitable, is he welcoming? Does he welcome people into his home? 
able to teach? We do look at the teaching. Is there, is there teaching in accordance with, with the Scriptures? Do they teach in submission to? And do they teach the content of the Scriptures? Are they faithful to God's Word? Not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. Is he greedy? He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? And on Paul goes. But again, look, look at how Paul is calling us, not to just look at what someone says about themselves. Someone might say that they're a follower of Jesus. And they might claim that they have a calling to a leadership position in the church. They might say that they feel called to be a pastor. But look at the fruit. Are they above reproach? Are they the husband of one wife? Are they faithful to their brides? Are they sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, and so on and so forth? And it's so incredibly important that we look for this fruit, that we look at character, that we see, that we look for these qualifications, because the major issue facing churches today is that we so often look at gifting instead of character. We look at gifting instead of character for trying to determine whether or not someone is called to ministry. And don't get me wrong, giftedness is not nothing, but it also isn't everything. In fact, when it comes to being called to pastoral ministry, it doesn't even seem to be primary. Now, Jesus didn't say you will know them by their giftedness. He said you will know them by their fruits. Gifts of communication, gifts of leadership, charismatic personalities may all be well and good, but those gifts should never be a higher priority than Christ-like character when we're choosing leaders to submit to and follow. And again, I mean that even for myself and the other elders here. If we show ourselves at any point in time to be wolves, to be these kinds of false prophets. You have a duty, if you're a member, to seek to remove us from our position or to run away as fast as you can. And you have our permission to do so. You don't submit to wolves. You don't submit to false teachers, to false prophets. And so while you're walking on the narrow way, you need to keep your eyes open. You need to be seeing clearly. You need to be on alert for false prophets, for wolves. They may look friendly at first, but look at the fruit of their lives because wolves will destroy and devour you and seek to lead you off the path. But then not only does Jesus warn us against wrongly judging for ourselves who ought to be our teachers and pastors and whatnot, but he also warns us against falsely judging for ourselves whether or not we're authentic believers. He says that our eyes need to be clear when we're looking not only at our leaders, but at ourselves. Look with me next at at words. Maybe it would be better to say mere words. Of course, we would lose alliteration. That would be tragic. But Jesus, he he goes on to warn us against uh, uh, assuming our salvation, assuming that we're on the narrow way simply because we speak the right words. Look at verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. In other words, not everyone who makes a profession of faith 
It's a true believer. Making a profession of faith is absolutely necessary. You know, Romans 10, 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Indeed, Christians are those who confess with their mouths that Jesus is Lord. However, a mere profession of the lordship of Christ without also trusting in and submitting to Jesus as Lord makes those words just words. They're empty and void without true belief. And notice that those professing here, calling Jesus Lord, Lord, they seem to have good theology even. And calling him Lord, that's a confession of his deity of his sovereignty, his supremacy, his messianic identity. They have at least some semblance of an understanding of who he is. They might even confess the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, good, sound, biblical theology. Yet there's something amiss. There's something missing. And this is part of why we need to know what true saving faith really is. As good biblical Protestants, We believe that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We're saved through faith alone. But what some unfortunately misunderstand that as saying is that if we only get our facts straight, if we only get our intellectual understanding of the gospel right and intellectually assent to certain truths, we're good, right? Wrong. That's not all that's involved with true saving faith. You know, the reformers rightfully and biblically taught that true saving faith has three aspects to it. The first aspect of true saving faith is that of intellectually grasping the truth of the gospel. You need to have some level of understanding concerning the truth claims of the faith. You need to know about Christ, about his life, about his crucifixion, about his death, about his resurrection. You need to know the facts and the claims of the gospel. But that's not enough. You must also intellectually assent to those claims. It's not enough just to know about the claims of Christianity. You must also agree that they are true. Christ truly did die for the sins of his people. Christ truly did rise on the third day as the first fruits of our resurrection. He truly is ascended and seated at the right hand of God. He truly does forgive and redeem and fill his people with the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. Do you profess that those claims are true? And and this again is vital. If it weren't vital, Jesus wouldn't have warned us to watch out for wolves, to watch out for false prophets. But even still, intellectual assent to the truth of Christianity is not enough. James, the the brother of Jesus, actually tells us in James 2.19 that demons come this far. He says that even the demons believe and shudder. And moreover, it seems that that those Jesus is speaking about here in Matthew 7, 21, they understand the claims of Christianity. They might even intellectually assent to the truths of Christianity. They may very well believe that Jesus is truly Lord of all. And so this third aspect is also absolutely vital and necessary as well. You must, this is the third aspect, you must personally trust in Christ. 
not just confess the faith, not just understand it and agree that it's true. You must personally trust in the man Christ Jesus. Of course, it reminds me of the story of Charles Blondin, the the daredevil who walked across the Niagara Falls on a tightrope. 1,100-foot hemp rope, two inches in diameter, tied on either side of the Niagara Falls. They drew a crowd, and Blondin walked across that tightrope with no net beneath. And he did it. He, He walked across safe and sound, and when he got to the other side, the crowd roared, so excited. And then he said, who, who thinks I can do it while carrying a camera on my back? And the crowd roared again, and he did it. He carried a huge camera on a tripod, I think is what it's called, on his back. And then he stopped in the middle of the rope and he snapped some photos. And after that, he said, who thinks I can do it blindfolded? (sighs) And he did it blindfolded. It's amazing. Safe and sound. Gets the other side. And then he said, who thinks I can do it while cooking an omelet? So he carries a mini traveling stove and a pan and some eggs, and he cooks an omelet in the middle of the rope. And then he asked... Okay, who thinks I can do it walking a a wheelbarrow across? And then he asks, who's getting in the wheelbarrow? And you see, real trust is getting in the wheelbarrow. Real trust is not just believing that Blondin can do it. Real trust is getting in the wheelbarrow. And in the same way, true Christianity, real saving faith, is not just professing that Jesus is Lord. That's necessary, yes. But true faith involves heartfelt trust. It's getting in the wheelbarrow. And so Jesus is warning us. He's saying to look at our lives and our hearts with a clear eye. And to really ask ourselves the question, do we trust in Christ? Have we gotten in the wheelbarrow? Or are we merely calling him Lord, Lord? We must watch out for mere words, mere profession, mere intellectual assent. And not only wolves and words, Jesus warns us against works. It says, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now, we we just saw in the previous verse, words are absolutely necessary, aren't they? We must profess and confess that Jesus is Lord. It's a necessity, but words are not enough. Well, similarly here, Jesus warns us against being those who claim kingdom citizenship because of our works. Now, our 
Are good works done in Jesus' name necessary? Yes, absolutely. Ephesians 2.10, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And part of what's interesting here is that these particular works, these good works done in Jesus' name are not only good, they're particularly powerful and mighty. They're particularly demonstrative and powerful gifts. The gifts exercised here, the, the gift of prophecy, casting out demons. Then he just sums them up and says that many mighty works, which could also be translated as many miracles. Didn't we do many miracles, Jesus? All of these mighty works are done in the name of Jesus. How interesting is that? Friends, it is good to do good works and mighty works in Jesus' name. It is good to be endowed with spiritual gifts. Indeed, if we were to go read the Apostle Paul's writings in 1 Corinthians, you would find him speaking about spiritual gifts in very positive terms. You'd find him saying in 1 Corinthians 12, 11, that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, equips and empowers and enables his people with spiritual gifts for the mutual edification of the body of Christ. You are, each of you, given, endowed with spiritual gifts for the sake of the building up of this community. That's good. If you were to go on and read 1 Corinthians 14, you would see in verse 1 that the apostle says, earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. Prophecy and its God-ordained use as a means of encouragement to the body of Christ is good. You should desire it, Paul says. Paul says you should even desire it above all the other gifts. Whatever your spiritual gift is, be it prophecy or tongues or healings or administration or mercy or helping or teaching or whatever, exercise that gift within the biblical boundaries which they are supposed to operate in. But, but here's the thing, don't trust in them. Notice the setting in which this conversation between Jesus and these gifted people takes place. He says it's on that day. The day of judgment, the judgment day. The day on which everyone will stand before the risen and glorified Christ and be judged, either entering into the bliss of resurrection life with him forever or eternal conscious torment in the lake of fire. And notice what these people are saying to Jesus on that day, assuming they're, they're trying to convince Jesus to grant them eternal life with him. They're telling Jesus that the basis on which they ought to be received into eternal life with him is these works the basis on which they are assuming Christ will grant them eternal life is their mighty works, their spiritual giftedness exercised in the name of Jesus. You see the question, why should I grant you eternal life? To that question they are answering, look at what I've done, and I cannot think of a more damning answer than that. If you are trusting in your works and the exercise of your gifts is the basis for your salvation, you are building your house on sinking sand. 
You see, Jesus wants you to see clearly about these mighty works as well. He's, he's warning you about seeing mighty works as the basis for your salvation. Spiritual gifts and good works done in the name of Jesus are good, but only Jesus saves. Okay, so if mighty works, profession of faith, these are not the way into the eternal blessedness of life with God in Christ forever. What is? Christ. Notice what he says when he sends away the workers of lawlessness into eternal condemnation. He says, I never knew you. I never knew you. You see, the issue on the day of final judgment, doesn't seem to be whether or not you knew the right words to speak or whether or not you had mighty works to boast of. Instead, the issue seems to be this. Are you known by Christ? Does he know you? And don't misunderstand. This can't be a kind of mere cognitive knowledge of one's existence. Jesus is the creator God. In a sense, he knows each and every single one of his creatures, every single image bearer, every single person that has or will ever exist. But this knowledge of which he speaks here isn't one of mere cognition. This this is a covenantal knowledge. This is a relational knowledge. At times, you know, the scriptures will use this word know, particularly relational, covenantal, intimate terms. Sometimes it's even used as a shorthand for sexual intercourse. Think of Genesis 4.1, and Adam knew his wife Eve. He knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain. It's particularly intimate and covenantal kind of knowledge, isn't it? The Lord speaks about his chosen people in this way. In Amos 3, 2, he says, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. You only have I known. The Apostle Paul speaks in similar ways in his letters to the Corinthians and to the Galatians. In 1 Corinthians 8, 3, he says that if anyone loves God, he is known by God. In Galatians 4, 9, he says, Now that you have come to know God, or rather, to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless principles of this world? You see the issue that we all will be faced with on the day of judgment is not whether or not, is not whether or not we knew the right words to speak. It's not whether or not we had mighty works to show. The question on that day will be this. Do we know and are we known by Jesus? Are we in a covenantal union with Jesus? Are we known by him? And don't you see, that is why Jesus came in the first place. He didn't have to come in the flesh, to give us a data download of information. He could have done that from heaven. He didn't come so that you would merely pass a theology quiz. He didn't come so that you would merely do mighty works in his name. Theology is so incredibly important. 
Obedience to Jesus, using our gifts to serve others in the name of Jesus is important, but not in lieu of knowing Christ. Christ came, Christ lived, Christ died, Christ rose, all so that you would be his and so that he would be yours forever. That's why he came. And so the question we need to ask ourselves today is this, do we see Christ clearly? Are we following him on the narrow way? Do we trust him? Because that's the way that you enter into this covenantal union, this this covenant relationship with him is by trusting him. That's how you enter into. So do you trust him? Do you personally trust him? Is he the basis for your salvation? If so, then on that day, he will not say to you, depart from me, but rather enter into the joy of your master. And you will be his and he will be yours forever and ever. So watch out while you're on the narrow way. Watch out for wolves. Watch out for mere words. And watch out for mistaking your mighty works with being known by Christ. Trust in him and in him alone. And you will be saved. Let's pray. Father, seal this word upon our hearts as we come forward to receive the bread and the cup. Help us to trust in you. Help us to treasure you. Help us to obey you all the days of our lives. Keep us alert. Keep our eyes open. Keep our eyes clear so that we can see wolves for what they are and so that we can see ourselves for what we are. Help us not to fall in the trap of thinking that mere words save or that mighty works save, but cause us to look to Jesus, to trust in Jesus in all things. We pray in his name. Amen.